1: it's monday november 27 2017 and you're listening to inquiring minds i'm kishore hari each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science politics and society collide we endeavor to find out what's true what's left to discover and why it all matters you can find us online at inquiring.show or on twitter at inquiring show and on facebook and you could subscribe to the show on itunes or any other podcasting app Last month, the 2017 Nobel Prizes were announced, and next week brings the official ceremonies. The usual celebrations and consternations have ensued. In terms of the science, we had the Physiology or Medicine Award go to Michael Young, Michael Rosbash, and Jeffrey Hall for their work understanding the molecular mechanisms underlining circadian rhythms. The Chemistry Award went to Jacques Dubochet. Joachim Frank, and Richard Henderson for their pioneering work on cryo-electron microscopy, which is an amazing technique for precise 3D imaging of small biological molecules. And the Physics Award went to Kip Thorne, Ray Weiss, and Barry Barish for their work on the LIGO project, detecting gravitational waves, actual ripples of space-time that rung a bell here on Earth. Amazing discovery, but this year we had nine all-male winners on projects that involve thousands of scientists. It seems like the time is ripe for a change to the Nobel Prize award, awarding the prize to groups or even posthumously. But the committees are apparently bound to the conditions of Alfred Nobel's will. But maybe it's time for an update to dispel the notion of lone scientists pushing the science forward. To me, the most intriguing announcement Was the physics one. Much has been made of the discovery, because it did confirm a component of Einstein's theory of relativity, and it opens up a whole new potential type of astronomical observations. In the past couple months, more astounding announcements have emerged from LIGO, including the collisions of two neutron stars. We may be on the cusp of decades of new amazing discoveries from this instrument alone. But the story of the conception and the construction of the device itself, A billion-dollar science project. These are extremely rare, complicated, and laden with politics. Very few believed in this idea of this method of detection of gravitational waves, let alone investing billions to build the detectors themselves. And in a strange way, the unlikely story is as impressive as the physics itself. Last year, we spoke to Jana Levin, a theoretical astrophysicist at Columbia, about her book Black Hole Blues, which chronicled the incredible story of the creation of LIGO right up to the detection. The personal stories, the decades-long personal journey from concept to execution, to me, that's the real prize, and it was one of my favorite books of last year. So with that, let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Jana Levin. This week's episode is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ believes that the best way to improve the health of the world is to celebrate the health conscious through social and financial rewards. So they use science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including runners, cyclists, strengtheners, and more. 56% of Health IQ customers save upwards of 33% on their life insurance. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ. After all, physically active people have a much lower risk of mortality, a lower risk of heart disease, and a decrease in cancer mortality compared to those who remain inactive according to a number of recent studies. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com inquiring. That's healthiq.com I-N-Q-U-I-R-I-N-G to get your free quote. And this week's episode is sponsored by Chef Steps. Are you a dinner party host looking for a foolproof way to get perfect meats, poultry, and fish? With the Joule sous vide tool, every home cook can create chef-level dishes thanks to precise temperature control. Joule makes sure your food will never over or undercook, so you're free to focus on your guests or whip up amazing sides. The app that accompanies the Joule sous vide has incredible video recipes, over a hundred of them that guide you through each step to ensure that everything comes out perfect. And if your guests are running late, you have a sous vide machine. It helps keep your food perfect and ready to go, so your food won't overcook. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com/jewel and use the code minds to get fifteen dollars off for limited time. That's chefsteps.com/jewel code minds. Jan Eleven, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Do you recall the moment when you heard the universe for
0: the first time? You mean the discovery? Yeah. Oh, my gosh, of course. Well, I remember the moment I was told of the discovery, which was a few months earlier than the announcement. Um, I got an amazing note from the director, David Reitze, and he later told me he really worked on crafting it just right in case I put it in the book. <laughs> Um, And it just said, confidential communication from LIGO. And my heart started pounding. I mean, here it's an ordinary day. I'm not expecting it. I'm lying on the couch. And um, I realized, I'm about to read something that's going to change everything. There's going to be a before and an after. And uh, and he told me about the discovery. On September 14th, we uh, recorded the collision of two black holes. It was a beautiful note, and it was signed Dave, Kip Thorne, and Ray Weiss.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. What, so sweet. What was it like for you
0: Well, reading
1: I, that note?
0: You know, I kept jumping up and leaping away <laughs> and trying to just knowing each sentence was going to blow my mind. And um, it was almost unbelievable like I didn't believe it for a second. And I think that's how a lot of the scientists felt when I spoke to Rana Adhikari, he's one of the LIGO scientists from Caltech. uh, He said, um, oh, come on, we just turned the thing on. (laughs) He said it took him a full day to even bother to look at the data. Um, And I think a lot of people felt that way. This can't be, this can't possibly be. All the experimentalists told me in August when the machine was approaching its first runs, the advanced machine was installed after years of installation and commissioning and getting it locked. They all told me, oh, 2018, the earliest. So I think it was um, it was a combination of surprise and also a feeling of, oh, this is it. Of course, this is it.
1: And do you remember when they, they sent the sound recording for the first time?
0: Yeah. So I, d- I sonified it myself as soon as they told me. So as soon as they told me the specs... Um, I do a lot of black hole astrophysics, so I have codes lying around where I've simulated the collision of two black holes um, colliding and I generate the gravitational waveform.
1: By the way, that's awesome. That you just <laughs> have that <laughs> lying around. You know,
0: I opened my Mac. I looked for an old you know, code that was a couple years old. I changed the specs to be black holes of about the mass that they were talking about, 29 times the mass of the sun, 35, 36 times the mass of the sun. and um, And I sent them on a very short circular orbit collision. The funny thing is I couldn't hear anything. It was driving me crazy. And when I kept playing back my own simulation of the sound, I couldn't hear anything. I was going nuts. It turns out that the frequencies are so low that they were falling off of what my computer speakers could manage. Thanks, Apple. (laughs) So yes, when I heard it for the first time for real, when they slowed it down and played it through proper speakers, and it has to be slowed down. It happens uh, that the The sound is only loud enough to record in the final fifth of a second, 200 milliseconds, and the ear can't parse it. So they slow it down, but somehow manage to maintain the frequency. I've actually got to ask them how they're doing this. But anyway, I remember it sounding different. It's sounding the same and different. I think what's stunning is how accurate the predictions are and how similar it is to what we predicted.
1: You're actually a black hole theorist more than an experimentalist. What drew you to this story of LIGO? Because you, I mean, you have impeccable timing. Your book came out right after the discovery, but it wasn't intended that way.
0: No, I was two years late on the book. (laughs) And I was two years late because I ended up writing a completely different book than the one I thought I was going to write. So yeah, I do a lot of theoretical work on black hole astrophysics. I have a special approach, I think, to explaining the, um, the astrophysics of black holes to explaining black holes as objects, the idea that there's really nothing there, they're not really things, they're more like places. Um, they're places that move around. <laughs> and um, I wanted to write a whole book about that. And I was using LIGO as a hook for um, generating enthusiasm about why we're still working so hard now, that LIGO is on the horizon. And um, I ended up just being totally enamored of what the experimentalists were doing precisely because I'm not an experimentalist and I couldn't do what they're doing. And I thought it was insane. I just thought it was insane. I couldn't believe the kind of confidence to build a machine out of metal and glass and light that could try to detect variations over four kilometers of a 10,000th of the width of a proton. I mean, I just, I, there's, it's almost like the theorists, some of us well, at least I am, are playing in my own imagination. And these guys were going to do something real.
1: Let's talk about the technical details of the discovery because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have heard about the discovery. Yeah. But not the instrument itself.
0: Yeah. So yeah. you visited the instrument? I instru- was like, I have a crush on the instrument. You have a crush on the instrument? <laughs> I have a crush Which on one? The, instrument. the one in Hanford or the one at The whole, in both of them. Um, I met the one at Hanford first. <laughs> Um, and that's because there's some wonderful people at Hanford that that really welcomed me, and I have to say, you know, it's a big community. They don't have to welcome in the theorist hanging on the periphery, and and they did. Mike Landry is lead scientist there. It's just this amazingly wonderful guy, and he took me around a lot, and uh, um, you know, we got in bunny suits, and we went into the labs. And this is during the time of the installation of the advanced machine. So I should say the first machines were built. In around 2000, the vacuum that exists along the four kilometer arms, which is along which the, the laser light travels, it was drawn in 1998, and has not been brought up to atmosphere since. Cumulatively, it's the largest holes in the Earth's atmosphere. There's less stuff in those arms than there is in regions of interstellar space.
1: And the whole need, the yeah. need for the vacuum is, is purely so that they don't they have a more precise instrument. There's nothing going to be in there that's going to interfere with.
0: That's right. The laser has to, has to be undeflected. The power has to be very high and built up and it's really to keep the laser nice and clean and so that it, it can travel four kilometers in a nice tight beam and hit a mirror at the end and, and on its return trip, tell the apex back at the apex of the instrument, back at the apex of the L-shaped instrument, um, how far away that mirror is. So it's really, the idea is that the mirrors are floating freely in space-time as much as they can be. They're hanging by these incredibly delicate glass fibers. And if a gravitational wave passes, the mirror bobs slightly on the wave, like something floating in the ocean.
1: And when you say mirror, is this a mirror that we all relate to in our house, or is this kind of specialized? The mirrors
0: to the human eye are completely transparent. They're hard to see, they're so transparent. They're stunning, and that's because uh, in optical light, they have zero reflectivity, (laughs) but they're perfect mirrors, very nearly 99.999% reflective to the laser light. And to do that, these mirrors are are ground, I think, in Germany, and then they're sent all over the world for like 80 special coatings. And they're sent in these boxes that have sort of GSP things on them so that when the people Get, get, receive them, they can tell if they've been mishandled <laughs> and that they haven't been knocked around. So it's a really delicate, the mirrors are important um, and a delicate, and there are many mirrors. There are secondary mirrors and primary mirrors. Um, um, but the primary mirrors are the ones that you're trying to locate in space time.
1: So let me see if I got this right. We have an L shaped, like four kilometer tube that has a near perfect vacuum pulled on it yes with mirrors that have been specially designed that they're so perfect they are translucent mm-hmm. and you have a precise laser running down the width of it Mm-hmm. And what kind of perturbation are we looking for in this so laser? So the
0: laser comes in at the apex of the L and splits, goes down the two arms, comes back and recombines. And it tells at the back at the apex, the laser light, if it recombines perfectly, tells you that the mirrors haven't moved. But it actually always recombines a little bit imperfectly. And if a gravitational wave passes, it tells you how much the mirrors have moved by. And it's measuring variations in the locations of the mirrors over four kilometers of one ten-thousandth the width of a proton.
1: Uh, That is nothing. That is (laughs) is so less than nothing. nothing It's so less
0: than nothing. In fact, it's a really complicated procedure where what they really try to do is continually put the mirror back to its location. And what they really measure is how much effort it takes to put the mirror back. It's kind of like a thermostat that's always trying to keep the temperature at 75 degrees. And um, it measures how much it has to work to keep putting it back to 75 degrees.
1: I love the actual story of the detection that night, because it seemed like it was incredibly unlikely.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, so the first generation of instruments ran for uh, many science runs, six, seven science runs, and I'm, I'm not positive, um, and detected nothing. And uh, it was probably operating at just a little worse than uh, a thousandth the width of a proton variations. It's, so it's pretty incredible. So when they turned the machine on in September, basically, they spent a few years Removing the old components, installing more advanced components, but preserving the vacuum along the tubes and commissioning, locking the instrument, you know, that takes months. And so when they turned it on, they weren't at full advanced capability. This was the first run. And they were still doing what they call engineering runs. They were still testing the machine, knocking it around. Ray Weiss, who's one of the original architects, who at 83 is still actively walking the beam tunnels, the tubes and doing experiments, says he was there on Sunday, September 3rd, 13th, uh, looking for radio interference, and his wife said it was really time for him to come home. And he said, Thank God, my wife told me to come home.
1: So he went home, so they, he they went stopped home. working on so it. So they
0: stopped. That night, graduate students who were doing other things and, and, and also other scientists who, who are permanent research scientists on the machine were working till four in the morning, uh, Louisiana time, till two in the morning in Washington state and um, and they're disturbing the machine, which means the machine can't make a detection while it's being disturbed. It's just gonna hear noise. And they decided, you know, it's not, the science run was postponed. They didn't feel they were completely ready yet, but they got tired at four in the morning. People often work all night long and they put their tools down and they went home. Within the span of an hour, this gravitational wave, which had been traveling for 1.3 billion years, comes from the southern sky, rings the machine in Louisiana, which luckily they left locked and in observing mode. It travels for seven milliseconds across the continent and then rings the machine in Washington state. By the time Ray wakes up, 8.30 a.m. or something on the East Coast, the gravitational waves traveled some hundreds of billions of light years. It's gone. And they look at the data, and there's an automatic signal in the data. And they think, huh, what was that? That's the reaction is like, huh, I wonder what happened, because they weren't
1: expecting something at this point.
0: They had not fully appreciated a couple of things. One was that even though at the high frequencies, the instrument wasn't as sensitive as it needs to be, at the low frequencies, it was doing really well. And um, they hadn't appreciated that there were going to be such big black holes ringing the instrument with such low notes. And so that's why it was a surprise. So it was a discovery on many levels. It was not just that it was the first gravitational wave sound recorded, which was obviously huge. It was black holes. And Ray told me in August, which in part inspired the title, um, if we don't discover black holes, this thing is a failure. You know, people told me black holes would be last. And it's because we don't understand the populations and how big they are and what, what's out there. Kip Thorne always said it's going to be black holes first, because he said, you know, they can get arbitrarily big. He was right. They can get arbitrarily big. And so they can be arbitrarily loud. And they're going to be the first ones we hear, even if they're less of them, the black hole pairs. Let's talk
1: briefly. What other things can this thing pick up besides so, the black holes, which it, is what we heard about? So and mostly... it's two black holes... It was two
0: black holes colliding. So like mallets on a drum, it's like this final, you know, crescendo when they're banging the drum. Um, we're also um, anticipating neutron star, neutron star mergers, and that's sort of bread and butter because we know neutron stars exist because we can see them in telescopes. And uh, we can't see them in other galaxies because they're too faint, So the black hole collision, I'm sorry, the neutron star collisions, we would be able to hear in other galaxies, even though we can't see them, because... They're loud enough that we presume to be able to hear. So I, used to, I always check the logs because I got so into this whole LIGO thing. I'm like um, a little LIGO groupie. So I would often check the logs, and they will quote their detectability range in terms of the neutron star-neutron star collision. We'll say we can hear neutron stars currently at a 50 megaparsecs, but they hadn't heard any, or 70 megaparsecs. So a megaparsec is about 3 million light years. So that's pretty far out. But it turns out that the black holes seem to be ringing the instrument, not the neutron stars. And that's because we're not very good at predicting how big they are. We, you know, and, uh, and while the community was, I think, I always thought making silly assumptions about how big they are and being a little too uh, invested in those predictions, we've now realized that, wow, they're huge. And, and there's many, many of them out there.
1: I guess the theorists that work on black holes probably have some work to do after this.
0: Yeah. So people like me um, have work to do just out of excitement, but I don't predict sizes of black holes. That comes more when people are working on stellar astrophysics, how big are stars and when they collapse, how big is the core that's left over because they explode and they shed a lot of material. And so those models, you know, they're hard and they're very numerically based in lots of nuclear physics and you know, I never felt that confident, even though the work is excellent, because there's so so many unknowns. I
1: I want to follow the thread of unlikeliness, because that seems to be a rhythm of this tale. Mm -hmm. Not only was the discovery unlikely, the instrument itself was unlikely. And the idea itself was almost as unlikely. I mean, Mm -hmm. this idea originated in general relativity, like Einstein's been Talked about this 100 years ago.
0: Yeah, Einstein said as soon as he wrote down the general theory of relativity, the theory of curved spacetime, he realized if objects moved, the curves in spacetime must follow them around.
1: But he struggled with this, He struggled
0: with it because he didn't know would they carry energy. Would they be gravitational waves that transported energy that, could, that were real, in that sense, that could energetically affect a detector or take energy away from the black hole? So, for instance, in the discovery that was made, the black holes, when they collided, formed a black hole 60 times about the mass of the sun. It shed mass. The black hole is less than the sum of the masses of those that collided, and that energy was dumped into the gravitational waves. None of it came out as light. It was the most powerful event we've ever detected since the Big Bang. The power that came out in gravitational waves was more than all the power of all the stars shining in the observable universe.
1: I can't handle that fact. I've heard that fact <laughs> when Discovery came out. And yeah. it it just points to the uh, to the nature of what we're studying is so... Uh, non-human. It's so alien in such a way. Yeah, but our ability that we translated that into a sound.
0: Yeah, and it
1: is, is bizarre mm-hmm. because everything up into this point we've yeah. observed with light.
0: Yes. And it is in the human auditory range. The, the instrument is sensitive, um, as Ray points out, to the frequency range of the piano. So if you were near the collision of the two black holes, even in vacuum, it's conceivable that the ringing of the shape of space-time would cause your eardrum to resonate just like air causes your eardrum to resonate, and you would technically hear it.
1: That's so bizarre. It's nuts.
0: You would also probably
1: yeah. There's die. all sorts of problems.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you shouldn't be that close to. If you heard that, I would get away. You know, but um, the unlikeliness of uh, of it is really you're right. Einstein struggled because he. Started immediately, said the most important thing to turn to was gravitational waves. Immediately in 1915, he started working on it. And uh, he kept saying they don't exist, they do exist, they don't exist. It went on for decades. He would um, he would write a paper saying gravitational waves don't exist. It would get accepted for publication. And he would sneak in, going to press, a paper that said they did. <laughs> so this was still being debated When they were building LIGO, I mean, they didn't call it LIGO in the early days, but when they first started building these instruments, it was still under debate whether or not gravitational waves were real and whether or not black holes were real.
1: So take us inside the conversations that Ray and Kip were having, Ray Mm -hmm. Weiss and Kip Thorne, Mm -hmm. were having that pushed this instrument along. Because if there's debate on whether it exists, I can't imagine there was a lot of Mm -hmm. motivation from the community to build this
0: Oh, there was not motivation from the community at all. And in fact, it was very negative. Ray was working on small prototypes in a shabby little lab when he was a young professor at MIT, and uh, and he was being told, look, you're not going to get tenure. This isn't important. It's never going to succeed in your lifetime. You've got to work on something else. And he did. He he worked on the microwave background, and he had a very uh, successful career working on the light left over from the Big Bang. But in the meantime, he always had this other project going. It was his real, true love. And he would have to switch graduate students on and off of it so they could get degrees. And um, he couldn't get funding. And then one day he heard that one of his proposals, which had been rejected for funding, had kind of made its way around the circuit, that people in Europe had heard about it and people were starting to build little interferometers. And and there were German groups who Ray raves about, say they were fantastic scientists and engineers, and they were really succeeding when he wasn't on his own idea. And he was, you know, he's a little jealous of that. And uh, and that's just how science works. Science works. You can't stop people, you know. And then he says the next big event was meeting Kip.
1: <laughs> so Kip is a famous physicist, but can you give us a little bit about Kip for our listeners that may not know? Sure. No.
0: So by the time he was 30, Kip was a tenured professor at Caltech. He was uh, a famous for being both incredibly careful, but also very dreamy and very willing to speculate. And so he had one foot in just the reality of astrophysics and another in wormholes and time machines. And he was just just deeply admired and still is. I mean, Kip has um, sort of a special quality about him that people just love and admire him. And he's a kind and wonderful, generous person. He really is an extraordinary person. And he... Was thinking, uh, you know, he describes walking, uh, I think it was on a visit to Cornell, thinking, what do I need to do? And this is amazing. He's already incredibly successful. And I think he's thinking, there's something bigger than me, bigger than my own achievements, bigger than my own accomplishments. He wanted Caltech to get into something big, something experimental. And he's not an experimentalist. So this was like, a uh a sort of gift to his community and he started to think about um gravitational wave detection and then he and and ray meet and they stay up all night one night drawing diagrams and talking about what the next big thing is when kip realizes you know i have to bring this to caltech and who should i get who should i get to come to caltech and that's when he brings in ron drever
1: So it's one thing for scientists to get excited about an idea, Mm -hmm. especially when it's big science. Mm -hmm. It's another thing for somebody to pay for it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right. So... For a while, it wasn't such big science. They were doing things for $50,000. They were building prototypes. When they brought in Ron Drever, who's a Scottish physicist, he started working on a 40-meter prototype, which is pretty big, but not big enough. But they didn't know at the time what was big enough because they didn't know what the sources were. Meanwhile, Kip is pushing forward the scientific case. He's he's trying to get accurate predictions for what the sources are. And that becomes his very important role is to try to understand the astrophysics. And uh, it ends up taking decades. And Ray begins to realize this is by the 80s. So they've already put a lot, you know, Ray's already put in two decades. yeah. Yeah, And although Ron has just joined Caltech, has also put in plenty of time in Scotland and elsewhere. And Ray realizes it's never gonna succeed not at a meter and a half, not at 10 meters, not at 40 meters. It's got to be kilometers. And that would have been a good time to quit. <laughs> and instead, he says, this is bigger than me, it's bigger than Ray, it's bigger than Ron, we have to do this together. And they go to the NSF, well, Ray does, really, and uh, and begins to make the clearest scientific case and the clearest evaluation of the budget. It comes in in the $100 million range, and even that was too small by several.
1: This is a big bet for the National Science Foundation. Yeah. And because that the amount of money that went into LIGO mm-hmm. more than, you know, certain departments of NSF in terms of their total budget.
0: Yeah, so People are always careful to stress to me that this came from physics. However, it's often compared to the astronomy budget just because of the magnitude. The astronomy budget at the NSF was smaller than the money all that they were giving to LIGO. In other words, LIGO was going to get more money than all of astronomy combined, and needless to say, that caused uh, not-so-great reaction from the astrophysics community. They said, look, this isn't an observatory. It's hundreds of millions of dollars. An observatory observes something, and it's not going to observe anything. It's
1: more predictable in terms of its output.
0: Right, and it's for three people. That's what they thought. It's an instrument for three people, and um, it's going to take money away from uh, you know graduate students and, and more effective projects, and it's going to go into digging, you know, foundations for buildings. So there was a very negative reaction. And I don't think people realize that when they heard this announcement on February 11th, and there was this huge celebration in 2016 of this discovery of the century, I don't think people realize that even eight months earlier, lots of people were throwing down bets against LIGA.
1: Wow. Yeah. I imagine... You had to convince Congress as much because it's a huge expenditure.
0: Yeah. So as the project grew and people, they finally had directors and they finally had a community of people working on it. They were, uh, had spent two years, the director at the time, Robbie Vogt, two years lobbying Congress to actually get the money released for the project. And, and there were a lot of twists and turns there.
1: <sighs> Unbelievable yeah. that they actually, it seems almost as unlikely that they made the detection right after they turned it on as building it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was uh, slated to fail many times. And it, I always liken it to a kind of climbing Mount Everest story. I mean, not everyone made it to the summit. And um, and making it to the summit is, is no mean feat. It's it, it requires an incredibly arduous push.
1: Now, the story got a lot, of, the discovery got a lot of coverage. Mm-hmm. But can you contextualize this as a physicist, how big of a discovery this is?
0: Well, I sometimes liken it to the first time Galileo pointed the telescope at the sky. Really? Well, we hope so. Our time will tell. But if you think about it, Galileo was just looking at Saturn and the moon and the sun. And that's because that's what we knew. He couldn't foresee quasars. Even galaxies weren't coming for a, a few hundred years before we, you know, understood uh, 300 years or something before we recognized our galaxies. So um, I think that this is not light, as you said, and it's a completely different way to observe the universe. So we're recording a kind of soundtrack to go alongside the silent movie. Of the universe. And who knows what else is out there. We start by telling Congress, (laughs) we're going to look for neutron stars, just like Galileo looked at Saturn, because we know they exist. It turns out we discovered black holes. Not that we didn't think black holes existed, but we have never observed two bare black holes. We've only ever uh, inferred black holes were out there by looking at the light of the debris around them. And this is a recording of a bare black hole with nothing around it. It's just the space-time coalescence. It's pure, literally there's nothing there. There's nothing in the black holes, as far as we know. It's just empty space-time coalescing with empty space-time. So it's already a huge discovery on top of the detection. And what I think would really thrill a lot of us is if the universe is replete with unforeseen phenomenon that's dark. We know, for instance, that 95% of the universe is dark, does not interact with light, and that everything we see is is less than 5% of what's in the cosmos. So uh, we're hoping for a whole new era.
1: So where does the detector go from here? Are they going to monitor more black holes or just keep listening to whatever comes to them?
0: Yeah, so they have to, that whole high frequency range or they have to push it down to do better because there might be exploding stars, colliding neutron stars, spinning neutron stars, candidates that we, pre- we expect um, hidden there where it's still too noisy. So, so the machine's down right now to try to improve things. And it will go back up hopefully by the end of the summer. Um, And then who knows, it'll start to run like a regular observatory is what we hope. There'll be candidates all the time that are black hole collisions and neutron stars and things like that. And the real exciting day will be, fingers crossed, if there's a recording that we can't recognize. You know, that's, I think, what everyone secretly hopes for. You never want to say that when you're trying to get money. (laughs) You never want to say, we're really hoping that we're going to discover something we've never thought of before, because it might completely fail on that basis. So you always have to say, look, we know there's neutron stars out there. At the very least, white dwarves and neutron stars, we're going to get those kinds of things.
1: this is a billion-dollar project.
0: Yeah, by the it, time it was done, integrated, it's a billion dollars.
1: So is the discovery spurring more detectors like this around the world?
0: Well, um, there is there are detectors that are being built around the world. There's uh, an underground detector, Kagra, in Japan that's underway. There's the Hope for LIGO India, which is literally LIGO components being built in India. Um, there's a machine, Virgo, which has always been in the LIGO collaboration, uh, an Italian um Uh, component that it should be online soon, because it's already fully developed, fully built. Um, So the network of detectors around the earth, what that will really do will be to help locate in the sky where this is coming from. Because just like sound, it's actually hard to locate where a sound is coming from. You know, if you're looking for your phone, you can spot it instantly if you can see it, but if all you can do is hear it, you're going to wander around aimlessly <laughs> trying to locate it. And it's kind of like that for LIGO with two ears, you know, the two instruments. It kind of vaguely says, ah, it's from over there. And um, they'd like to be able to say much more precisely, oh, it clearly came from that galaxy. In is this part everything going
1: to be ground-based, or, is they gonna, or so are we going to do So space-based
0: mission has been um, long time under development. It's called LISA. And um, Lisa, unfortunately, the US pulled out of funding Lisa. And so that was a big blow. There was a real um, effort to revive Lisa as a purely European um, mission. And hopefully the states will step back in and make that a reality. So Lisa is still under development. They've pathfinder has already been launched which means they've uh, they've launched something to look for the right orbit um in which to put lisa and lisa is still under design development and if it gets enough funding it will be pushed over the edge and like ligo we're in the era where that may or may not ever happen we may have a post lisa era when we think oh that was touch and go lisa almost didn't succeed or it might be like the superconducting supercollider, where we say you know that's a shame that never happened
1: What do you think the legacy of Ray, Kip, and Ron is going to be? I mean, the discovery itself is going to earn them accolades. Like I imagine Nobel Mm -hmm. Prize is coming. Yeah, I mean,
0: everyone's wondering when when that would happen. Um, They've already won several prizes. Um, The Gruber Prize in astronomy is a huge prize. They were awarded, and they were awarded a recent breakthrough um, prize. And that's, I think, going to... Uh, keep coming in. And they're so humble and sweet. I mean, they're 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 quite confident people. I mean, they're not ridiculously humble. But um, recently, somebody was flattering Ray. One of his colleagues, Nergis, um, fr- a colleague from MIT, was saying something wonderful about Ray. And he's covering his ears. I don't want to hear it. He's saying, oh, it just gets worse. <laughs> you know? He's very quick to say, there were hundreds of people on this instrument. And Kip was very quick to say the same thing. Um, so,
1: But the legacy of their commitment yeah. to this idea, do you think that's going to have long-ranging impacts, not only in physics, but in other realms of science as well?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, that's why I wrote their stories, because I felt it has these universal themes of being committed to something when no one else is, when everyone else is telling you it's a bad idea, and curiosity impels you to keep going, and, and they just couldn't stop. And I think that's something that we all admire, and that is a kind of classic human story of drive and curiosity
1: i love that sentiment because it reinforces the idea that that science is still a human endeavor
0: and oh, yeah. even
1: when we you do the math as it were, yeah, uh it takes a little bit of chance sometimes to pull it all together, and well, it only works when a whole group of people come together. The lone scientist doesn't operate that way anymore.
0: yeah that's that's absolutely right as a scientist, I have to believe in the objectivity of my work that it doesn't matter if it's my calculation or somebody else's. And it doesn't matter if somebody does it or if I do it. And um, and that's brutal, right? Because we are human beings and we are a little bit ego-driven. And yet, in reality, it was these guys. And in reality, it would not have been pulled off if it hadn't have been them, if they hadn't pushed it through.
1: Thank you so much for sharing their story.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihalla, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. If you're looking for an excellent gift on Giving Tuesday, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Indra will be back next week. And this week's episode was brought to you by Chef Steps. Great cooking is part art, but it's definitely part science. Joule sous vide takes care of the science, cooking meat, fish, and poultry to perfection with precise temperature control. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash and use the code MINDS to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash code MINDS.